I have a long experience of treating this uh, cervical myelopathy. And you know, you always wonder if something more can be done for these cases because we know the surgery works in these cases. But then, you know, what is, what is if there's something beyond surgery? This is Myelopathy Matters. Hello, welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Myelopathy.org. I'm Ben Davies, a scientist, surgeon and a founder of Myelopathy.org, and as always joined by my colleague Ewan Sadler, person living with DCM and also a founder of Myelopathy.org. How are you, Ewan? Yeah, I'm good, Ben. I've got some new myelopathy symptoms playing up, but glad to see the warmer weather has finally arrived. It's been a long time coming, even longer when you live in Wales. I can imagine. On the flip side, it's great to see our work at myelopathy.org come to fruition and reach out to more parts of the world. And I'm really interested in the research in India and this drug, cerebrolysin. That wasn't too bad. Spot on. That is exactly correct. So that really is the focus of today's podcast episode with our guest, Dr. Ayush Sharma. He's the head of spine surgery at Ambedkar Central Railway Hospital in India. And he's been leading a series of trials to evaluate whether this drug, cerebrolysin, could enhance recovery after surgery in DCM. And I started by asking him how he became interested in that question. I have a long experience of treating this uh, cervical myelopathy. And, you know, you always wonder if something more can be done for these cases because we know the surgery works in these cases. But then if there's something beyond surgery and where you can help them because we know neurology, surgery is just a decompression. What you do is you decompress the cord. But if there was anything which could help the cord to recover better or faster, that was the whole idea of, you know, searching for something which might help these patients. So we are lo- looking through the literature and we came across this drug, which is called cerebrolysis, which is basically a neuropeptide drug uh, because it contains 85% free amino acid and then it has 15% biologically active low molecule weight peptide, which is supposed to have a neurotropic effect and also contributes to neuroprotective and new neurodegenerative actions. So we were very curious to see, and there was already a published paper on the conservatively treated patients of myelopathy where they, the authors sort of concluded that it does help in these cases. So we sort of, uh, the idea came to us, what if we combine it with surgery and see what happens in these patients? So that is how we started this working with cerebrolysis. Mm. And, and perhaps we could go a little bit into a bit more detail because it's, as a sort of drug i mean it's quite interesting how it's produced isn't it because it comes from my understanding is a sort of purification of pig brain is that correct yeah that, that's correct what we know is cerebrolysin is uh, it works on various principles and the but then the exact principle which which it works is still uh, not very correct and not still we are trying to find it out but uh, it has uh, like, as I told you, neuroprotective function and uh, some, somewhere in the line, uh, we believe that it works on the brain because it is a certified drug for stroke. Uh, and that is where the idea of using it in patient of myelopathy came from. If you really uh, want to see how it really works, it is very, very difficult because even the jury is still out there. It is. We know, for example, paracetamol, you know, till now we don't know how it works. 
and there's a lot of mechanisms where how it works, but no one has been able to, you know, really pinpoint how mm-hmm. the drug works. Similarly, there are a lot of proposed mechanisms. If you go to the literature, there are a lot of proposed mechanisms for the for how the this specific drug works, but there's enough data from uh, research in stroke, from other brain injury, which supports that it does have a role when it comes to, you know, sort of helping the brain or the spine cord to regenerate. And mm-hmm. that is where the idea comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sort of follow, I mean, I had I, when I was digging into it in advance of, of talking to you, I was trying to get a sense of, of, of the mechanism. It, it clearly is not, is not fully defined. And one of the exactly, things that occurred exactly. to me is that, you know, essentially what you're essentially providing here are the sort of nutrients and the growth factors okay. that are present in our nervous system, in a healthy nervous system. Okay. And, and it sort of sparked the idea to me that some of the sort of ongoing work, particularly from a chap called Ari Nuri in, in, in Switzerland, is that there is probably quite a large nutritional deficit in, in people presenting for surgery with myelopathy. And, and whether or not we're simply here boosting, giving them a sort of nutritional shot um, to try and help them recover because surgery takes the mechanism of injury away and then you have this sort of plastic response in the spinal cord and that maybe we've got here a very sophisticated uh, nutritional supplement. Maybe, maybe we, there's no way to, you know, prove or disprove it because if you see there are a lot of mechanisms which have been proposed, how this drug exactly works, but as long as it works, I think I will take it. That is my call on this drug. Mm-hmm. No, I follow. You know, I believe there's some indications, aren't there? Stroke, you mentioned. People have been looking at other conditions like traumatic brain injury, but it's not been widely adopted. It's certain countries have have licensed it for sure. And is India one of those? Or that I mean, how did you manage to get this into a study in India? Yeah. So, it, so basically, it is licensed. It is a licensed product in India, but it has not been widely used for myelopathy. It is very widely used for stroke. And for traumatic injury, it is uh, in in my country. So it was already a licensed product. Only thing we chose is it to be uh, used in an indication which 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 was not earlier thought of because there is still I think ours is the third paper in the series of uh, use of cerebral license for cervical myelopathy. I'm with you. So how did you go about getting that study off the ground then? What were the sort of procedures or permissions that you needed to? To, to be able to use that. So, so anything which you do new, it does come with some sort of a challenge. So we do have a uh, the hospital ethical committee which needs to clear a research like this. There was a precedence to do it because we already had a paper, as I spoke earlier, where they have studied this drug uh, in conservatively treated cases of myelopathy and the authors, they concluded that it worked. So we sort of... Uh, proposed this study to our committee and thought they what they suggested is to do a pilot study just to see with a small number of patients so that we can at least uh, find out if it really has any role and especially to look at the, any adverse reaction. So this study which are, we are talking about right now is the second series. We did a pilot study first where we sort of concluded that it was very, very safe to be used. And we felt that it does work in myelopathy. And this is the second part of the study where we sort of did the randomized control and we sort of divided the patient into two groups and tried to find out what was the effect of cerebral license. When well, let's talk about that. Patient. Let's yeah. talk about that study yeah. now because um, that's really yeah. what we want to hear more about. So perhaps you could talk us through the, you know, 
what that study looked like and, and, and we can come on to the findings. So basically, you know, uh, the idea was to see the effect of cerebral license uh, in cases where we have, we, in patients where we have operated for myelopathy. So earlier study we did with 21-day drug regime because the recommendation from the index study was for 21 days. But the problem was it was very, very difficult to, you know, give the patient a drug for 21 days because this, this drug specifically is an IV-administered drug. So compliance was a big issue. So in this study, what we did is we divided the patients into two groups, and uh, which were, of course, randomly assigned. But uh, we knew that the drug worked. So the group where the drug was used was slightly, like it was a, uh, like uh, out of 90, we gave 60 patients, we gave cerebral license, and 30 patients were put on placebo. And then what we did is, uh, uh, as per the recommendation, we gave 5 ml of cerebralicin, which was diluted in normal saline, 100 ml, for 10 days. So instead of giving it for 21 days, which was the earlier regime which was used, we used 10-day regime, and we tried out to see if there was any difference in the result between the two groups. And what was the sort of appetite from the, the, the participants, the patients? Were they happy to receive cerebralicin? You know, obviously, understanding it's come from, from pig brains, etc. Was there any cultural issues with that? Well, in, in India... Uh, there are lots of vegetarians, if you if you understand. So a lot of them they won't eat any meat product. But when it comes to drug, most of the patients they accept even if the drug comes from a meat product because that is the acceptability of a drug. So you know, as such, we 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 did of course because we are doing a research. We during consent we did explain them the origin of the drug and everything. But in spite of being coming from the pig brain, we didn't find that uh, we didn't have a refusal just because uh, there, were, there was a problem with the uh, origin of the, of the drug. Mm-hmm. And, and how, what, how do you set up to, to measure success? What were your sort of measurements? What were you looking for to, to see? Okay. So, so basically, uh, what we did is we tried to evaluate the patient uh, between preoperative and post-operative period after the drug was given. So the parameters that were used specifically was the MGO score, which was which is a modified Japanese orthopedic score to look for the improvement in the science of myelopathy. We also specifically looked at a hand function as a separate parameter because we believe uh, the hand function is very, very important for any patient. If you hand, hand functions better, then most of the patients, they really appreciate that point. So we took it as a separate entity. We also looked at the VAR scores. We also looked at the neurological recovery in terms of Asia grading. So these are the scores which we compared preoperatively and postoperatively once the patient was given the, given the drug. And of course, we had, we had a group where we used a placebo. So we compared the two groups. And that is where we sort of tried to analyze if the drug had any effect on these patients when it came to recovery of the uh, symptoms. So, so in summary, there's good breadth of sort of function, hand, limb, and also pain scores in terms of your, your assessment there. One of the things yeah, that strikes exactly. me, being quite familiar with building studies now in myelopathy, is we know that those scores are quite difficult to detect additional benefit on from surgery, and your sample size is relatively small by the scale of other trials how did you select that sort of patient group of 90 and you know do you think that was enough for this study 
so so we are now coming up with a bigger trial okay so this is also is this is not the the final study if i can say because you know still when we went from 21 to 10 uh, data raising we were not sure if it was really uh, if the drug will really have effect so this study is again is part two of the pilot project we were trying to find out if the 10 day drug raising which we felt which is good enough for us to do a bigger trial will have any effect so this is again what i can tell you is the part 2 of our pilot project now we are in the third stage where we we will be giving using it on a much larger population and we believe that is where the real data will come from but as of uh, now what we got i think it was very very interesting well let's hear that what what were the findings of this part 2 study then so so basically based on our study we we concluded few things we we saw that the neurological improvement was better in the group where we used febrilizin compared to the group where placebo was given and specifically the hand function because you know mj score as you know anyone who does uh, research with uh, myelopathy is very very difficult sometimes to really pick up the benefits and that is one of the flaws of the mj score but so that's why we looked at an independent variable which was the hand function so even we found out that the hand function in the group which uh, we used the drug that was better so we thought that based on that we concluded that uh, this drug seems to have some effect when it comes to improving the symptoms of uh, patients of cervical myeloma fantastic and i think you picked up on this already but ultimately you also saw this was a safe safe thing and well tolerated exactly the first study was basically a safety study the second study was to validate the course of the of, of the drug if it has any effect on and then of course to again validate the safety of the drug mm-hmm. and how big big and difference in improvement was that was that something that was really meaningful do you think so if you know as a researcher meaning comes to you when you see the numbers as a surgeon meaning comes to me when i see the patient improvement if you ask me as a researcher i still i we have seen the statistics is, is on the positive side but as a surgeon if you ask me i believe it has a meaning to these patients and that's mm-hmm. why now we have adapted it as a as a standard regime for all our patients who undergo surgery for cervical myelopathy and that will be a million dollar question if we can find a difference in terms of statistics in the improvement when we do the large series which we are presently working with so let's talk a little bit about that then so you've got another study running now and what does exactly. that study look like so so basically that now because we we sort of have reached a place where we know that 10 day drug raising works we know if this drug is safe we know there are trends based on whatever we have done that it sort of works in these patients so now as a standard protocol all the patients of cervical myelopathy which uh, which undergo surgery they are given this uh, this the same protocol 10 day Uh, duration of injection cerebrolysin and we will sort of divided our patients pre cerebrolysin group and post cerebrolysin group all the patients will be will will be divided into that group and we will, because uh, it will be like like a uh, prospective uh, uh, prospective study and uh, and with a at least two years minimum follow up 
and we will try to find out if the two groups have any difference in terms of the parameters like VAR score, the MGO score, hand function, and even we are looking at some of the MRI signals uh, pre-op and post-op one-year follow-up if if they can show us some some improvement or some difference. So let me just make sure I've heard that right. So essentially, you're setting up now a final evaluation. I guess we call it a phase three study. And you essentially yeah. got a pre-intervention group and then post-intervention. So you're looking at a sort of crossover type design in terms of how you're going to evaluate this now. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, and how many people are you expecting to enroll in, in this bigger bigger study now? So uh, we, we do have the data from the first two studies. So now we have a very good enrollment and uh, because you know you can just put the put the results and, and let them choose. But as of now, I think uh, I think uh, ninety to ninety five percent of our patients who are uh, scheduled for surgery for cervical myelopathy are enrolled for the phase three. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And and um, in, uh, what's a slightly different question here, Ayesh. Um, yeah. I guess one of the questions that comes up often with sort of drug studies, particularly novel drugs, is what's and devices indeed in surgery. What, what's been the relationship with the the pharmaceutical company in terms of putting this together? Because there's always that concern of, of conflicts of interest, etc. What has the relationship been here in terms of with the manufacturer and your studies? So, so they, there is no financial or any contribution from the manufacturer. So this is, study is completely independent. Of the manufacturer, of the manufacturer, except for that, of course, the drug has been provided, but that drug has not been provided by the manufacturer at at any like for the study or anything. It is it is just have been bought from the market like uh, any other drug. So basically, this group of patients or the study design has nothing to do with direct or indirect support from the industry. Fantastic. And and have you been able to expand this study beyond your centre? Is this something that's been able to use other other centres in India or have you just restricted it to your to your service? So, so, yeah, so once we published the second data, there were a lot of interest in 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 the study and in the drug. So now we I I'm I'm I know for sure there are two other centres who are looking you're using the drug, okay. But I don't know if they are also trying to look it at uh, at the results in terms of any data or statistics, but it will be very interesting to see what they come, uh, what they conclude. Because you know, one center doing something like this and telling it doesn't make a lot of difference. It has to be other surgeons. It has to be this. The effect of this drug has to be independently verified. I think mm-hmm. that is the time we can, you know, really say if this really works. Yeah, and I really stand behind that. I think there is. There's always that scrutiny and that sort of hangover of doubt from the outsider, and they have to see that's been done in exactly the right and exactly the right way. Otherwise, there'll be um, potential criticism, I suppose. Yeah, I so, completely agree with you on that. What a great and interesting interview! Can't say my taste buds jump with joy when he mentioned he was purified pigs' brains. But saying that. It's great they are looking at medications to help people regain some of the function that has been lost due to DCM. So it all sounds really promising. So what's your perspective then, Ben? Well, there are a number of emotions, really. I think there's excitement, admiration, but also caution. Let's start with the admiration. It really cannot be underestimated how difficult it is to get research and DCM off the ground. 
let alone prospective randomized controlled trials of drugs. I'm only aware of a handful of drug studies that have ever been conducted in DCM. Yet here we had Dr. Sharma, who's identified a critical unmet need, potential unexplored solution, and let's face it, in a resource-limited environment, managed to progress through a very structured scientific inquiry. And that is really impressive. So this really then feeds into the excitement because what he's demonstrated is that here is something safe, well-tolerated, patients are buying into it. And there are some suggestions that maybe there are some benefits. But then comes the caution. I think this is important because we're still not sure how this drug cerebralizer really works. And more importantly, if this works. When you design an effectiveness study, you need to really prove two things. One, that those getting the drug do better and that that difference is not simply down to chance. And the second thing is that any difference that you see is actually a meaningful difference. The amount gained is actually something that people can really identify with having changed. Now, the study that Dr. Sharma has just completed wasn't really designed to consider effectiveness. Bottom line, there weren't enough people in the study to do that. His aim at that stage was really to consider whether it was safe and look at the dosing of the drug. He's now going on to look at effectiveness. So that means there's still lots of uncertainty here, although there is some promise. And I was interested by the nutrition concept you put forward, Ben. What is your thinking there? Well, it's really only an idea, to be honest, but it starts from what we, we think is going on and, and some of the increasing evidence. So if you think about DCM, yes, there is a mechanical injury process, but it seems that two people can have the very same injury, but very different uh, results from that. So what we're starting to think is occurring is that everyone actually has a different ability to tolerate that injury, and that difference can change over time. And one of the things that may influence that is nutrition. So, for example, if you don't have the right building blocks to repair your nervous system in the wake of a chronic repeated injury, then eventually that injury uh, will overwhelm the repair processes. And this has had some preliminary work done actually by Arya Nuria from, from Geneva in a number of studies uh, looking at sort of surrogates of how nutritionally replete somebody is and their recovery and response uh, to the disease. So, for example, what they found is that people who had anemia i.e. they had a low blood count because they didn't have the right nutrients to make their, uh, their, their blood cells. They actually seem to perform worse in terms of their response to surgery. And he's actually looking at B12 supplements, for example. So I think together it suggests that, you know, there is perhaps in people undergoing surgery for myelopathy a, a deficiency in the real ingredients that they need to repair the central nervous system. And it's very possible that, that some of those ingredients are in cerebralysin and, and may be contributing to some benefits. But it's all an idea, really, and the proof will, will be in more, more scientific inquiry. That's great. I'm looking forward to that, too. But I do echo your sense of admiration, Ben. As someone who struggles so much with myelopathy, to have anyone take an interest in DCM is really inspiring. It, it really is. And, of course, that's you know, one of the reasons we formed myelopathy.org, you know, education, support, but also research. And we really want to make sure that innovation anywhere can help people everywhere. And um, that starts by giving people like Dr. Ayas Sharma, hopefully helping hand, raise the profile of what he's trying to achieve and, and, and keeping a close eye on the results. So what's up next month, Ben? Well, next month, it's a big one. We are turning our attention to disc replacement for myelopathy. Uh, and it's a big one because it doesn't seem to be a single viewpoint. We've gone out and spoken to a lot of people, professional scientists and people with DCM, so plenty to digest and think about uh, as we get to the bottom of if and when and how you should have a disc replacement in myelopathy. So thanks very much to Ayas Sharma for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. 
podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of generative cervical myelopathy, you can subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or stay tuned to the website, myelopathy.org. But if you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. Until next time, goodbye.